that uh, summer is over. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, we live in Canada and we're, we're, we're heading full speed forward into winter. But the good news is before you get to winter, you have fall. And that's back to school time. And that's a very uh, exciting time. I always love fall. And uh, I w- it's a time when even as a church, we're going to be gearing up with different ministries. Our children's ministry will be beginning in a couple of weeks. And uh, we just want to, in advance, thank our uh, children ministry workers for the discipleship that they uh, commit to and invest in our children downstairs through the week, uh, through the year. Uh, we're returning now to uh, a sermon series on the book of Hebrews. It's, it's been about a month since we've been in the book of Hebrews. If you just want to open your Bible to uh, Hebrews chapter 3... Today we're, we're going to pivot. There's a transition in the book up until this point, just to refresh your memory. Uh, the book has been all about Jesus, that the first two chapters, the, the author of Hebrews, whom we don't know who it is, has spent all of those chapters just going over who Jesus is. And we've been told that Jesus is superior to angels. Angels are great. Angels are powerful. Angels are magnificent. Jesus is more. He is superior to angels. Uh, we've also learned that Jesus is nothing short of God Himself in human form. That, that Jesus is the Almighty God. In, in the very second verse of this book, we're told that it is through Jesus that God created all things. So that Jesus Himself is the Creator. He is the Word of God, and it is through the Word of God that all things have been created. And then in chapter 2, we begin to see a little bit more clearly that even while Jesus is superior to angels, even while His superiority is full divinity, that is, He is God, as much as the Father is God, Jesus is God, at the very same time, without diminishing His glory as God, He is our brother. That He is fully human. Everything that makes you and me human, Jesus shares. He has a human body. He has a human mind. He has a human soul. He has a human will. He he has human emotions. Jesus is fully man. And so, He is our brother. And And that is just an astonishing thing. Because when we say that Jesus is our brother meaning that He shares with us in our humanity, and and literally that we become His brothers and sisters by grace through faith, what we're saying is that God is our brother, or that, that we are the brother or the sister of God. Just let that sink in. God has a brother, and it's you. If you believe in Jesus Christ. And as our brother... Jesus has come forward into the world to be our merciful and faithful high priest. And He does this in a number of ways. Uh, the first thing that a priest does by, by definition is a priest is called to mediate a relationship between God Almighty, who's holy and perfect and sinless, and, and humanity, which is fallen and sinful and depraved. A priest tries to mediate that relationship, and you see in the Old Covenant uh, efforts at this that are never satisfactory. They, they never get the job done. Jesus does it perfectly. How does He do that? Well, He propitiates the wrath of God 
that is poured out against sinful humanity. Well, okay, that's a mouthful. What does that mean? Uh, to put it really simple, it means this. God hates sin, and He's going to pour out His wrath on all sin. So as our faithful high priest, who, fully God, fully man, He comes and He, he removes that wrath from us when we put our faith in Him. How does He do that? Well, He he takes our sin into Himself and He says, God, pour out Your wrath on Adam's sin, on on Adam Brown's sin, on me, on the cross. And, And here's the reality that we all need to know. God will punish every last one of your sins with eternal condemnation. The only question is, where is He going to do that? Is He going to do that on Jesus Christ while He hangs on the cross? Or is He going to pour out His eternal wrath and condemnation on you in yourself? And if you take option two, then you have no place with Christ, you have no place with God, and you are eternally condemned. But we have a merciful and faithful high priest, our brother, who shares with us in our humanity, who is also God Almighty, who propitiates God's wrath. That is, He says, I'll take it for you. I will absorb the wrath of God for you if you want Me to. That's why the Bible says you're a fool if you don't fear God and by extension give your sin to Christ so that the wrath that you deserve falls to Him. Lastly, before we transition into this text, I had to sort of go over this in order to lay a foundation for where the author is going in our text today. As our merciful and faithful high priest, not only does he propitiate God's wrath, that is, satisfy God's wrath, redirect God's wrath from us to the cross, he is able to help those who are tempted. Because Jesus was tempted in every way, and yet he never yielded to sin. And just like a branch that when you bend it, eventually it breaks... And Jesus, though, as He was tempted and the branch is bent, the branch never broke for Jesus. Which means that the the level, the depth of the temptation that Jesus endured without sinning was greater than any human being who ever walked the face of the earth. And we often think of it the opposite way. We think, well, if Jesus never sinned, then the temptations must not have been that intense. The reality is that the intensity of the temptation that Jesus endured far surpasses anything that you or I have ever gone through. We have never been tempted the way Jesus was tempted. And He never broke. You see, when we break and we sin, the temptation is over and we transition from temptation to sin. Jesus never made that transition. And so... The enemy of our souls, Satan himself, poured out the depth of his worst work on Jesus and tempted him beyond anything that we will ever experience. Therefore, when you are tempted, we can go to Jesus and say, help me in my temptation because you were tempted like this and you did not break. You know what it's like to be tempted. You did not sin. Help me in my temptation. That's the the foundation for for today's message. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter three. We're going. I'm going to read this in three sections, and we're going to go through each section uh, today. The reason we've gone through a summary of chapters one and two is because of the very first word in Hebrews chapter three. What is that word? 
Therefore, therefore, in light of chapters 1 and 2, now we're transitioning into something new. We're, we're going to pivot in the book. Therefore, in light of the, the surpassing glory, the divinity, the humanity, and the work of Jesus Christ, in light of all of that, holy brothers, this is directed at men and women, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus. The apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. By contrast, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are His house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Let's pray and invite God to help us to understand this first section of three this morning of His Word. Heavenly Father, we thank You of these glorious truths revealed to us about Jesus Christ. That that He is equal to You in every way. He he shares with You in all of Your divinity, in all of Your glory. And He is worthy of our praise and our worship. We thank You also that You've revealed to us that He is one of us. A man. Everything that makes us human, Jesus shares. And uh, the mystery of this we will never fully understand in this life. But what we do understand, we revel in and we invite You by Your Holy Spirit to take us deeper. As we look at this third chapter of the book of Hebrews, Holy Spirit, teach us, lead us, guide us, help us to understand and change us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. These six verses, as I said, transition the book. Uh, Chapters 1 and 2 about Jesus. Chapters 3 through 10 are all about how the new covenant is superior to the Mosaic covenant or the the covenant that, that God instituted through Moses. And so we're going to look at the first part of the the superior nature of the New Covenant today. And the way that the author of Hebrews begins this this shift in the text is to compare Jesus and Moses. God established the first covenant through Moses. He established the second covenant through Jesus. First covenant through Moses. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a glorious covenant. It's the words of God. Second covenant through Jesus. A better covenant. Uh, now, when we say a better covenant, we don't mean that the old is gone and we forget it. That was sort of good but not great. And now we have something brand new. When we say a better covenant, what we mean is the first covenant that, that is given through Moses in the new covenant is filled up. So if you think of, of the old covenant as a set of jars... The new covenant is not the jar, but the liquid that you pour into the jar. 
They're not entirely different. One, one gives you the shape of what God is going to do through Jesus Christ. That's the old covenant through Moses. The second covenant, though, which is the one instituted by Jesus himself, fills up the jars of the old covenant. That's why it's better. The form is given in the old covenant. It's filled in the new covenant. We're told here in the first six verses, therefore, in light of who Jesus is, consider him. Consider Him. Consider that Jesus, who gives us the new covenant, who fills up the old covenant, is counted worthy of more glory than Moses. And then we're given sort of two related images to think of. The first thing that we see here is that the builder of a house has more glory than the house. The builder of the house has more glory than the house. God is the builder of all things. In Hebrews 1 verse 2, we're told that it is through Jesus that God created the world. He is the builder. And we can say it two ways. We can say God is the builder. And we can equally say that Jesus is the builder. So the very first thing that we learn here is that Jesus is superior to Moses just as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. So Jesus is the builder of the house. And then related to this, moving on this, we look at, well, what is the house exactly? We see at the very end that the house is us. Uh, We are his house. Go down in verse six. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And then here we are his house. The builder of the house is greater than the house. We are the house. God's covenant people are the house. Now, who is Moses in relationship? We know that Jesus is the builder of the house. He builds us together as a church. Well, who is Moses? Moses was good, but he wasn't the builder of the house. He was a servant to the house. We are the house that God builds. The builder is greater than the house. Jesus is the builder of the house. He's greater than us. Well, then who is Moses? He is a servant to the house. Moses is a servant to us. What does the the author of Hebrews mean when he says that Moses is a servant to the house? It means that Moses sketched out through the old covenant things that we would fill up. He, the old covenant gives us shape or form or concepts or shadows that help us to understand that which Jesus, the builder of the house, who is a son over the house, would then fill up in himself. And so, so Moses is a servant in that he helps us to understand the house that God is building through the new covenant. And we are that house. Let me put it to you this way. In the Old Testament, is there anyone greater than Moses? 
Yes and no. You, you could make the argument that among men, Moses is at the top. He laid the foundation. It's through Moses that God established the Old Covenant. So in that sense, if you want to say, you know, who is great in this world? Well, you could, you could say, well, you know, what about Abraham? What about Jacob? What about Judah? What about David? Sure. But you have to at least put Moses on a short list of, of men that God used in a mighty way in the Old Testament. He is at the apex on a very short list of great men that God used. That's wonderful to say that. Even though Moses is at the apex of human glory in the Old Testament, he's nothing compared to Jesus who is a son over the house. Uh, The one who, who used Moses and other men and women as servants to prepare a foundation, to create a form, to establish the jars that then Jesus would come and fill up with the new covenant. Jesus is far superior to Moses. Now that's what chapters 3 through 10 are all about. Uh, Now the writer of Hebrews is going to go through it and help us to understand uh, what do you mean that Jesus is superior to Moses? Because if, if you're a first century Jewish person, that, that's pretty hard to swallow. It's very difficult for you to say, well, this Jesus who was crucified is superior to Moses. And if you're a first century Jew, if you're a Hebrew man or woman, you, you can't help but say, well, Jesus never wrote anything down. Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. How how can you say that this Jesus is superior to Moses who gave us the Torah? That's what the book of Hebrews is all about. Moses gave us the Torah, or more accurately, God gave us the Torah through Moses. But He filled up the Torah through Jesus Christ. That's the difference. So what's better? The jar or that which fills the jar? It's that which fills the jar. Therefore, Jesus is superior in every way. And what we see in the book of Hebrews, which is why I love the book, is that now in chapters 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, we're going to go through the Torah. We're going to go through the books of Moses and and the major points that God gave us through uh, through Moses in, in the Torah, and we're going to see how Jesus fills them up, fills them up, fills them up. Jesus is better. Jesus is superior. The, the jar is nothing compared to that which fills the jar, and that is Jesus Himself. Jesus is superior to Moses. So Hebrew now, Hebrews now goes and, and begins to look at that. The very first filling up to be addressed in the book of Hebrews is the very history of the Torah. Because if you go back and you read, the Torah is the first five books of, of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We, the Torah is a Hebrew word which means instruction or law. When you think about the law, when, when the New Testament writers talk about the law, they're talking about the Torah predominantly. And the law has narrative sections in it, right? The law is more than just do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. That's how we think about law. But but biblically, the law is is the whole history of God's people at this time. And in the law, there are statutes and instructions. But it's much more than that. So the very first thing that Jesus fills up before we get to the statutes of do this, don't do that, and institutions for for worship and high priests and sacrifices and all that, is the history itself. 
the very first thing that Jesus fills up in the Torah, in the law, is the history of the law itself. The story of God's people from Genesis through Deuteronomy and beyond. And that's what we're going to look at right now. In order to understand this, before I read uh, verses 7 through the end of, of the chapter, let's refresh ourselves on this biblical theology of the history of Israel and how Jesus fills it up. So I'm going to go over this very, very quick. If you've been at The Rock, you'll know this in greater depth. If you have any questions about this and you're new to The Rock, you can ask someone who's been attending here or come and speak with me after. But very quickly, if we were to summarize the plot of the Torah... The plot of the Torah. By the time you get into the book of Exodus, God has has called for Himself a family. This is the family of Abraham. And because there's a famine in the land, they go into Egypt. Because there's food in Egypt. Within generations, this family of 70 or so people grow in number into hundreds and thousands. And there comes a time when as the family of Abraham grows... They are enslaved and they become slaves in Egypt for 400 years. At the end of these 400 years, there's some 2 million men, women, and children who are enslaved in Egypt. So God raises up Moses. And He sends Moses to deliver the people out of slavery. And the climactic way that God does this is He institutes the Passover where God says, take a lamb, slaughter the lamb, put the blood of the lamb over your doorpost and lintel. I'm going to kill the firstborn person in every house in Egypt, but if I see the blood on your door, I will pass over your house and no one in your house will die. So that happens. The firstborn person or son in every house in Egypt does die. And Pharaoh is heartbroken. He says, I cannot compete with this. This is the tenth of ten very difficult plagues. And Pharaoh says, go, go. And the king of Egypt says, go and all you slaves, uh, here's some wealth, go worship your God, just leave us alone. And so the people are delivered by God through Moses by the Passover and they go into the wilderness en route to Mount Sinai where they're going to meet with God. They pass through the Red Sea. So the sea is parted. They go through on dry ground. They go to the Mount Sinai where they enter into covenant with God. They spend a year at Mount Sinai while God gives them uh, the rules of the covenant. Instructions for worship. After that, God says, I promised your forefather Abraham some land. I want you to go there. In order to get from Sinai to the land that I promised your father Abraham, you have to go through the wilderness. As they're going through the wilderness, they, they lack faith. This is important. This is what our text is going to talk about. They lack faith to go into the land that God has promised to give them. So God says, fine, you, you don't believe that I will give you the land that I promised to give you because the people are too many, because their fortifications are too high, because they're too tall and strong, and they're too warlike, and you don't believe that me, the God of the universe who created everything, can handle that? You don't believe that I can take them down and give you the land that I promised to give you? Then you can stay here in the wilderness. So they do. And it's the next generation, at the very end of the Torah, very end of the law, it's the next generation plus two men, Joshua and Caleb, from the Exodus generation. Think about that. Two out of two million. 
go into the land. That's the book of Joshua. And now we're out of the law into what the, we call the prophets. Yeah, Joshua is a prophetic book. And all the way forward you have the prophets. So, so the law, the, the very first thing that the writer of Hebrews wants us to see is that, that Jesus is superior to Moses because not only does, does uh, Moses lived a particular history delivering the people out of slavery in Egypt, but Jesus fills up that historical experience with meaning. Let's take a look at it. Verse 7 through to the end of 11 to start. Therefore, therefore what? Well, therefore, verses 1 to 6. Therefore, because Jesus is superior to Moses, therefore, because Moses gave us the jars, but Jesus fills them up, therefore, because Moses was a servant to the house, which is us, the people in relationship with God through Jesus Christ, but Jesus is a son over the house, because of those things, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and now we're going to be citing the, the, the author of Hebrews here, uh, cites Psalm 95, verses 7 to 11. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with a generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. They shall not enter my rest. That's how it ends. What is this rest that, that the psalmist in Psalm 95 is talking about? Well, the psalmist in Psalm 95 is reflecting back to Israel's wilderness experience. And what Psalm 95 is about, and the author of Hebrews here is alluding to, is I want you to remember, you who are in the New Covenant, you who are the house that Jesus has built, I want you to remember the people who followed Moses out of slavery and learn from them. Don't be like them. And then what... The psalmist remembers, and the writer of Hebrews is bringing to mind here, is that even though two million men, women, and children came out of slavery, they did not have enough faith to receive the promise that God had given to them as far back as their forefather Abraham. And the, the promise that he had reiterated with Abraham's son and grandson and every generation since, that he would give them that land. And, and so the, the, the author of Hebrews is saying, don't be like that. Now remember that we were all born into this world as slaves. We're all enslaved to sin. We all need a Passover deliverance, right? We all by faith need to take the blood of Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb. We need to see Him on the cross and apply it to our lives. And when we do, we're told that, that God's wrath will pass over. We come out of slavery. We go through the waters of baptism. We enter into a new covenant with God. And, and the rest of Hebrews is going to show how the old covenant given at Sinai is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But here's the reality. We are in the wilderness waiting for what? 
entrance into the land that God has promised us. And what is that land? It starts with heaven. That, that the promised land that God gave to, or, or promised to Abraham and gave to Israel was but a picture of heaven. We are in the wilderness now, but if we have faith, we will go to heaven. But heaven is not the end. Uh, we are told that God will actually recreate the universe for us and He will bring heaven and He will put it on earth. And so, so what the, the writer of Hebrews wants us to remember is that we are walking along a very similar path that Moses and the delivered slaves walked along. And just as they were in the wilderness, so we are in a kind of wilderness. That's our life. And just as in the wilderness, God asked the people of Israel who had been delivered from their slavery in Egypt to believe him when he said, I can give you the land that I had promised. Now us, that now that we have been delivered from our sin by the blood of our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, and we are walking through life, not yet in the land that God had promised us. What God wants us to do is to remember and to believe that he can take us there and he will. He will. Do you believe that? Do you believe that though we are in the wilderness right now in our lives, that if you've put your faith in Christ, you will go to be with God in heaven? Do you really believe that God can then recreate this universe in greater glory and then bring heaven to earth and then give us the glorified cosmos, the new heavens and the new earth. Do you believe that God is able to do that? What the writer of Hebrews here is recognizing, and, and this, this is very convicting for us as Christians, is that salvation has two parts. There's deliverance from slavery. That's part one. And then there's Entering into the promised land. That's phase two. Deliverance from slavery. Entrance into the promised land. Now we are caught between those two phases just as Israel when they were in the wilderness were caught between those two phases. They had been delivered from slavery. But they had not yet entered into the promised land. Now here's the warning for us. If you hear His voice, if, if you've heard the Gospel, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. That is the rebellion against God when they were in the wilderness. On the day of testing, when they tested God, when they said, God, You've delivered us from slavery, but we don't believe that You can get the job done. We don't believe You can safely deliver us to the promised land. And, and what we would say is, we, we believe that You've saved us from our sin, but we don't believe that You are capable to deliver us into heaven. We don't believe that You are able to take us into a new heavens and a new earth. We are just focusing on our deliverance from slavery, but we don't really have the confidence to, to, to believe that You're going to take us where we ought to be, where we want to to go because we're caught between the two phases of of God's gospel and so what the writer of Hebrews is here is saying don't don't put God to the test the way the Israelites put God to the test why not why not why do we have to have as much confidence in our future glorification as we do in our deliverance from sin 
Because if we only believe in our deliverance from sin and we do not have a rock-solid confidence in our future glorification, that is, heaven, resurrection from the dead, new heavens and a new earth, if we don't have a rock-solid confidence that God can and God will do that, we cannot truly have confidence that we've even been delivered from sin. That, that, that the gospel is not just salvation from slavery. It's also entrance into the promised land. And you need, you must have equal faith in both. Here's the problem. Two million people came out of slavery in Egypt. They, they saw it. They experienced it. They saw God's wonders. And then they tripped in the wilderness and lacked the faith to go into the promised land. And what happened to them? They died in the wilderness. They did not enter into God's rest. What that means is they did not go into the promised land. What does that mean for us? It means they were delivered from slavery, but they weren't actually saved. They didn't make it. This is where it gets hard for us. We focus so much in the church on on what God has done to the neglect of what God will do. And what God is saying here through the author of Hebrews, if you want to have confidence in your salvation, you need to have equal faith in both what God has done and what God will do. Otherwise, you're not actually saved. That's hard, right? That's that's hard. And here's the, here's the reality... Two million people came out of slavery, uh, but only their children. So there may have been children that came out of slavery that weren't counted as the, the, the generation that fell in the wilderness. But a remnant of those who were delivered from Egypt went into the promised land. So it will be with those who attend church. There's lots of people who would sincerely say, I, I believe in the cross. I believe what God accomplished on the cross and, and attend church their whole life. But they trip in the wilderness and they don't enter into God's rest. What a tragedy. That's the third part of this chapter. Let's take a look at it. Verse 12. Take care, brothers. Be careful. Focus on this. Make sure... That you are rock solid in this. That's all captured by, by those two English words. Take care. Take care. This is important, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. This is not about gaining salvation and then losing it. It's about never having truly gained it. It's about being in church, but not actually having the faith to enter into God's rest, which is heaven and then the new heavens and the new earth. It's about having 
partial faith, which is not full saving faith. Take heart. Be careful. You don't want to fall away from the living God because you only looked at what God had done and not what God promised to do. Verse 13, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt? And were led by Moses, and with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is why it's so frightening. We're told to exhort one another every day. Verse 13. Every day exhort one another. As long as it is called today. So what does that mean? It means every day. So tomorrow is a new today. And next week is a new today. And next month is a new today. And ten years from now is a new today. Every day that is called today, exhort one another. So that you don't find that you actually have an evil, unbelieving heart. The most tragic thing for any so-called Christian is to get to the end of their life and meet God and find out that they were never saved. So, so what God is exhorting us here is that together we need to continually remind ourselves, remember the Gospel, remember what God has done. He has delivered us from slavery to sin. And, this is the pivot point, and He's taken us into the promised land. Now we're between the two acts of salvation, what God has done and what God is going to do. Now that we're in the wilderness between the two acts of salvation, praise God for what He's done and have faith, have confidence in what God is going to do so that you will enter into His rest. So that you will go to heaven. So that you will be resurrected from the dead for eternal life. So that you will live forever in a new heavens and a new earth. Verse 16, Who were those who heard and yet rebelled? This is such a, a frightening question for us as Christians. Who were those who heard the Word of God and yet rebelled? What was the Word of God that, that are being alluded to? The Word of God that said, go and take the land. And they rebelled against that Word. Say, we can't. Was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses? What's, what's the writer of Hebrews getting at here? Who is it that hears the Word of God and yet will not enter into heaven and then the new heavens and the new earth? Who is, who is this chapter directed to? It's not for the unrepentant sinners who don't believe in God through Jesus Christ. That's not who's being addressed here. Uh, it wasn't the Egyptians that fell in the wilderness. It was the Exodus generation. What's our translation? What, what's, what's the translation for us? What is the writer getting to? 
Who is it that he's concerned about that won't make it to heaven? Is it not those who are filling the pews of the local churches? That's the point here. And so we all must inspect ourselves and then help one another, exhort one another every day, lest we find out at the end of our days that we actually had an evil and unbelieving heart. I want to share with you something. Um, I asked permission to do this. Ed and Marge aren't here today. Uh, they had planned to be here. Uh, but I went through this with, with Ed last night. Because I know, I mean, the timing of it could be difficult. But I want to share with you what I shared with him. Ed, this is not you. Because I, I see your faith. I, I mean, I've been meeting with Ed and I've been exhorting him the way that this text calls us to exhort one another to faithfulness, to belief, to confidence, not only in the deliverance from slavery to sin, but also, and especially in Ed's case, the promises of promised land. Right? Because Ed is in the wilderness like we're in the wilderness, and yet he is about to step into the promised land, at least the first phase of it, which is heaven. And one thing that I said to Ed is, you know, we all... We all are challenged by this because there's something comforting about what you know. It's comforting to be in the wilderness if you're Israel because it means you don't have to go and try and take down Jericho. Because that takes a lot of faith. Because they're bigger. They're, they're stronger. Their cities are fortified. And it's not just Jericho. After Jericho, there's AI. And then after AI, there's like countless other cities that you got to go in. And you've got nothing but God. <laughs> nothing but God. That's the point, isn't it? It's hard to leave the wilderness, even though, let's be honest, life sometimes isn't that good. And yet it's still very popular to be alive. It's amazing when you think about how hard life is, how miserable life can be, how we all still want to be alive. But that's good. But here's the point. Going out of the wilderness into the promised land, that's a promotion. Right? That is a good transition. That's the goal. We're supposed to go from deliverance to promised land and in between is the wilderness. Okay, so we're in the wilderness right now. What I said to Ed is, look, you, you are, you're about to be promoted. You're about to, to achieve the goal for which you've been delivered. And he found that very comforting. And, and, and he was excited. And he, he, he said, I feel good. I, I, I'm ready. I, I, I'm excited. And, and of course, you know, the next day he's going to struggle because we're all like that. But I, I looked at Ed and I said, listen, the promised land is for you. Because you can't be excited about this unless you do believe. Unless you do have rock solid faith. And, and here's what I'm saying to you. I hope, I hope, I pray that if God gives me an awareness that I'm coming, I'm approaching the end of my own life, I hope I would have the same faith that He has. I, I hope that at the end of my days, I will find that I haven't just been preaching theoretically, but, but the faith that I'm preaching, I have. 
But what I need and what we all need is one another to exhort one another every day. So long as it is called today, remember what God has done. Remember what God is going to do. Remember what God has done. Remember what God is going to do. Believe in what God has done. Believe in what God is going to do. And we need to build one another up we, so that we don't get to the end and say, oh, I, I don't know that I have enough faith to take that step. Ed has the faith. I, I have no confidence. I, I have nothing but confidence for him. But what about us? Most of us, I believe, have a solid faith in what God has done. But that is a counterfeit faith if we do not have an equal confidence in what God promises to do. That's the point. We have to look backward and forward. And so I'm inviting all of us, myself especially, to truly seek ourselves and and, and ask ourselves, do we really believe? If today was, if someone told you that today was your last day, how's your faith? Are you ready to enter into God's rest? Are you as confident of heaven and resurrection from the dead, and new heavens and new earth, as you are of forgiveness of sins purchased on the cross. There are many, many people in our churches, maybe some here this morning, who believe God has forgiven them, but do not believe deep down that they're going to heaven. Or that they will be resurrected from the dead. If that's you, better to know that today than at the, the end of your days. As for Ed and as for many of us, I want to end on a very positive note. That confidence in what God has done and what God is going to do is a gift from Him. And Paul says to the Philippians, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And I can say that about this church. I know that there are many in this church and I thank God for you 
Because I know that that which God began in you, He will bring to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And it is my pastoral obligation while we are in the wilderness to help you to be sure of your faith. Not just for what God has done, but what God promises to do. Because if you do not believe that God is able and willing not just to forgive you for your sins, but to take you into heaven, to raise you from the dead, and to give you citizenship in the new heavens and the new earth, then you will not enter His rest. But if you have a rock-solid faith, if you believe that God is able and He will, then you will be counted among the saints who live with Jesus Christ forever and ever. So we take the exhortation seriously, but we also revel in the promise. Today, if you hear His voice, I've said it, I don't know, ten times what God promises to do. Take us to heaven. Hear God's voice. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, this is what He promises to do. He will take you to heaven when your body stops living. Then He will raise your body from the dead. Then He will recreate this universe in glory. Then He will put heaven on this earth and you will live with Him forever in glory. Forever. Hear His voice. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Believe. And if you believe, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Praise be to God. This is the first way that Jesus is superior to Moses. Moses prepared the people to enter into Canaan, a little plot of land in the Middle East. Jesus prepares us to enter into the eternal promised land filled with much greater glory. Jesus, therefore, is greater than Moses. And we are on a better journey with a better destination than Israel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You that You are able. You are powerful. You will lead us into the promised land. And we believe You. We trust You. We, we, we thank You for Jesus Christ, our Passover land, who affected our deliverance from our slavery to sin. And now that we are in the wilderness walking by faith, help us to stand firm in that faith even unto the end, even as we approach our last days, full of confidence that You will take us into heaven. And then You will raise us from the dead. And then You will glorify this universe. And then You will put heaven on earth. And then we will live with You forever and ever in glorified bodies. We believe it. Help us to believe it. By Your grace, give us rock-solid confidence that we would not perish in the wilderness like so many of Israel. Praise be to Jesus Christ. Jesus, You are greater than Moses. Amen.